We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 today. Very important passage. Acts chapter 9. If you're looking for that in your Bible, it's in your New Testaments. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, fifth book of your Bible. In the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, there's this fascinating story that takes place. Joshua is the story of the people of God who are coming out of the Exodus, and they're entering into the Promised Land. And as they're entering into the Promised Land, they know that they have a very difficult road ahead of them. There's an entire land to be conquered, uh, the land of Canaan that will one day become the land of Israel. This is long in the Old Testament. And as they're entering into the Promised Land, they have to cross the Jordan River, And as they cross the Jordan River, it's kind of this moment where they're looking back at the last 40 years. They're remembering all that God has already done, how God brought them out of Egypt, how he gave them food, manna, and water in the wilderness. And and now they're looking ahead at their life of what they've got to do. And, And God instructs Joshua to do something very interesting when they cross the Jordan River. He instructs them to set up 12 large stones and to place those stones right in the center of the Jordan River. They're stones of remembrance. And in Joshua chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, we get a sense for why God instructed Joshua to do that. We read this. That this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. They were to place the stones in the river because God also did a mighty miracle in the middle of the the Jordan. He parted the waters of the Jordan just like he had the waters of the Red Sea. And then what would happen is whenever the people of Israel would look back at those stones, they'd say, remember what God did in our life? Do you remember that, how we crossed the Jordan River on dry land and entered into the promised land? And and then every time their children ask, what are those stones for? Well, what is that? Tell me about that, mom and dad. Then parents get to look at their children and say, let me tell you what God did in my life. See, we, we were coming to a really difficult time, and God parted the waters in a way that we never would have seen happen. And we crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Stones of remembrance. In the Christian life, we must have stones of remembrance, We must have these moments and memorials in our life where we look back at the long haul of our life and the difficulties we've come through, the circumstances that God's brought us through, the challenges we've overcome, the joys in our life that God's brought into our life, the moments of grief. And we must look back and see all the work that God has done and be able to pinpoint and say, see that? That was the Lord. And then when our children and our church come alongside and they ask about this moment in our life, we can say, let me tell you what the Lord's done in my life. It's remarkable. You never believe it. Let me tell you all about Jesus Christ. We must always have these stones of remembrance. And the greatest stone of remembrance in the Christian's life is our own conversion story. It's that moment when God took us, when we were on a path away from him, destined for hell, and then he took us and he changed our heart and he made us a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the largest stone of remembrance and monument and memorial in our entire life and existence. Everything else that happens in our life is underneath the shadow of our new birth as Christians. That moment when God took us and he made us a believer in Christ. Here in our passage today, we have the conversion story of Saul. Remember, we're working through the book of Acts and we're in Acts chapter 9 today. And I got a lot of text to work through today, but I'm going to try to get through all of it. 
And we are coming across a conversion story. It's the story of a man named Saul. Saul would become Paul. And you might know the name Paul in the New Testament because Paul is a very significant figure. He wrote much of the New Testament, many of the New Testament epistles, the books that we study as a church. For example, Romans, the last series we did, Paul wrote that. His first name was Saul. And before he was Paul the apostle, he was Saul the persecutor of the church. And today we read about the way he came to have faith in Jesus Christ. This is perhaps one of the greatest conversion stories in the history of the entire church. Saul, the great persecutor. You remember in Acts chapter 6, when Stephen, the deacon Stephen was killed, they laid his garments at the feet of Saul, meaning it was Saul who oversaw the martyr of the first Christian man we're aware of in the Bible. Stephen, that was this guy. One of the great conversion stories in all of history. But while it's also a great conversion story in the sense of God would end up using this man, Saul, in a unique and powerful way that unlike anybody else in Christian history, it's also a simple conversion story. And as we read of this story, what we're going to find is that all of the major turning points of Saul's story are actually, when you boil it down, the same turning points, the same stones of remembrance as every follower of Christ. Though his story is unique and powerful, and it was Saul who became Paul. I mean, it's him. It's also our story. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at his story. And as I do, I want to bring us back to our story, to your story. And what I'm hoping to do inside of you today is to stir up a remembrance of what Christ has done in your life. Sometimes we go through life and we forget to look back at the stones of remembrance that we set up once a long time ago in the Jordan River so that we would never forget. Today is one of those days where if you're a Christian, we look backwards. And then we want to leave here. We want to tell everyone around us, see that? That's what God did in my life. We're going to use Saul's story in, in uh, a method of doing that today. I also want to say this as we get going here. I believe that there's probably some who are in this room today that might not yet be followers of Christ. I believe that there are some who are going to watch this, certainly, who are not yet followers of Christ. And as you read the conversion story of Saul, my hope for you is that you would find yourself in this and that this would be your moment to determine here and now you're not going to go anywhere until you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So open up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to cover five stones of remembrance, five stones of remembrance in every person's conversion story of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Stone number one. We were hostile enemies of God. We were hostile enemies of God. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, So that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called Christians early on, the way. If they found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I love that little detail of men or women. Isn't that fascinating? The ruthlessness of this persecution. Doesn't matter who you were, man or women. We're showing no partiality here. You're following the way, you're coming bound to Jerusalem with us. That was Saul's heart. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A good study for you to do on your own time might be going through the New Testament and looking at all the places where someone's name is called out twice. 
Very powerful study. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Stone number one is Saul's story, but is also our own story, if you're a Christian. We were hostile enemies of God. We first noticed that Paul was breathing threats and murders against Christians. We already told you, in Acts, I already told you, in Acts chapter 6, what we found is that Saul was the one overseeing the persecution and ultimate stoning of a man named Stephen. And now what he's done is he's gone to the religious Pharisees of the day, the religious leaders of the day. They're looking at Christianity growing and beginning to thrive in the new world, in, uh, around Israel. And, and Saul is going to the religious leaders saying, let me be the one to go and kill this thing called the way off. Send me. And so the religious leaders of Israel, they send him essentially with an entire squadron of riot police, is what they were. They were riot police that he was able to go and bound anyone they found, bring them, drag them in. And we don't know what would have happened, but our guess is that significant persecution would have followed. Perhaps murder. Now, the great irony of Paul, as I hope to show you, is that Paul honestly believed what he was doing was right. That's significant. When we read of stories like Saul, sometimes we get this idea that they knew they were the villain, right? He just knew he was a bad guy. He was doing what he shouldn't do. That's very few people actually live evil out that way. Most people believe what they're doing is the right thing. And we might even say is the godly thing to do, whatever their belief in God is. For Saul and his Phariseeism of being in the sect of Pharisees within the history of the Jewish faith, he believed that this persecution of Christianity was what God desired him to do. But notice, it's not how, how much zeal we bring into any religious faith that is what God is pleased with. It's the content of our faith. It doesn't matter how much zeal we have. It's the content of our faith. What is our faith structured around? It's what we believe that actually matters. And ultimately, Paul, at this point in his life, had all the zeal in the world, but it was angled in the wrong direction, and it was not pleasing to God. You want to know a little bit more about this man named Saul? It's interesting. Saul, many times throughout the New Testament, will tell of his story of who he was and what God has done in his life. There's a number of times Paul regularly went back to his own testimony as a stone of remembrance and said, let me remind you who I was. We read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, 4, 4 to 7. Paul says this, Though I myself have every reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he begins to give his details of his life, how, how zealous he was for the law. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, 
That's a religious leader of his day. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, you want to find somebody who looked at the law of God and did everything I humanly could to live up to that law? Look no further. It was me. I did everything I could. I was blameless. And then he goes on to say this, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the guy that everyone in a church like this, if we would say a synagogue like this in the Jewish tradition of the first century, would have looked at him and they would have said, now there's a guy that's following God. He's setting the bar pretty high. That was Saul. He knew that about himself. He was very aware of that. Now let's take the magnifying glass off Saul for a moment. Let's put it on us. The first condition upon which a person enters into faith in Jesus Christ is that we recognize that we are sinful sinners. That we recognize that something is fundamentally wrong within our heart and there is a rift between us and a holy God. The story of the Bible is not that all of us are born into a morally neutral state. That we were genuinely just fairly decent people who just needed a little bit of religion in our life. That's not the story of the Bible. In fact, the story of the Bible is quite opposite from that. What the Bible tells about our condition before a holy God is that we were sinners all the way through and that every one of us, like Saul, was a hostile enemy towards the Lord. Now, not everybody did that overtly the way Saul did, at least in the way we see our own story. Most of you were not going around killing men like me. Okay, that's not what most of you were doing. Maybe that was what some of you were doing. It wasn't what most of you were doing because I know most of your stories. Though you weren't doing it that overtly, every one of our stories is the same. We started out as an enemy of God, sinful all the way through, hostile towards his law and decrees. Let me read a few passages to you from the Bible that remind us of this. Romans chapter three, verse 23. All have sinned, that's every human being, apart from Jesus, and fall short of the law of God, of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter two, verses one to two. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't morally neutral, just breathing and need a little bit more life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which, in, which, in, one, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a name for the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What does that passage say? It doesn't say that you were alive and just needed a little bit more life. It says you were dead and you were following Satan, not God. That's Paul writing to every follower of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, that's the person who's not yet a follower of Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What's that verse saying? It's saying if you're not yet a follower of Christ, true spirituality, true faith, true acknowledgement of who God is and what he desires for your life and what you ought to be doing with your life and how to follow the law of God, you're incapable of actually understanding that. It's just folly to you. Why? Well, because you're spiritually dead. The great problem of humanity is not that we're morally neutral. The great problem of humanity is that we are spiritually dead, incapable of breath with God, incapable of our unity with God on our own actions. We loved darkness. We were enemies of the Lord. Now, some of you are in this room right now and you're saying this, that seems too extreme to be my story. 
That's my guess. Most in this room are feeling that a little bit right now. And that's good. That's good. Because if you're saying that, it means you got something to learn still about the Bible and about your true condition before the Lord. You were an enemy of God, destined for hell because of your disobedience and your love of the darkness. Sometimes I go back over my own testimony. I, I came to the Lord when I was about 17, 18 years old. And on the whole, I think my parents would say I was a fairly good kid. Good in terms of the world. You know, I look back on my, on my mistakes and sins I made before I knew the Lord. And I sometimes shudder at myself. I sometimes cringe at the foolishness, the way I spoke the jokes I made, the way I treated people. And, and the reality is, is that it, it takes a moment to look at this stone of remembrance and actually realize your spiritual condition and the miracle that God's done in your life. But it's important for us to do this. We were enemies of the Lord, hostile. We had set up our camp underneath Satan and we were attacking the way. Even when we didn't realize that's what we were doing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Now, if this seems harsh, it's good. It's, it's part of our stone of remembrance. Because look, light shines brightest against a dark backdrop. We've got to know our story to understand the beauty of the gospel. We were enemies of the Lord. Stone of remembrance number one. Stone of remembrance number two. It is the Lord who took the first step, not us. Stone of remembrance number two. It was the Lord who took the first step, not us. Look at Paul's story here. When does Jesus get a hold of Saul? It wasn't like this. Saul wasn't going around and he was saying, Christians, teach me everything. I got to know this Bible. I got to know who God is. That's not what happened. Saul was on a road to go round up more Christians to persecute them. He was in the process of hating the God of the Bible. He was in the process of persecuting Christians. He was in the process of trying to, trying to rile more people up to hate the God of the Bible. How many people can I get with me? Let's get all these men around me to go get this movement started to crush Christianity. And on the road, who met him? Jesus met him. See, it was Jesus who took the first step. It wasn't Saul who took the first step. Jesus took the first step. This is every one of your conditions and our conditions before God. If the Lord were not to intervene in our life, our destiny would be a continued path of deadness and death before the Lord. We would not turn on our own towards the Lord. There's a, a hymn. It's actually not a hymn. It's a newer song, but to me it sounds and feels like a hymn. One of my very favorite songs. I sing it regularly in my own worship, and we sing it as a church. The word, it's called All I Have is Christ. Listen to the words to this song. We sing this together as a church. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. That's interesting, isn't it? The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. That's this verse. 
So you wanna talk about worship songs. One of the things we do as, as pastors and as worship leaders is we're vetting worship songs to make sure they're theologically true. Is this what the Bible teaches? This is true. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. Hear that? Sometimes we tell our, our testimonies of what God's done in our life, and the way we tell it is as if we took the first step. I know I've made that mistake very many times. I remember in my own life, I prayed a prayer. I came home from a party in high school one night, and you can imagine, I won't explain with the children here what my condition was coming home from that party. I did not know the Lord. And I came down, I sat down next to my bed, and I prayed a prayer like this. I said, God, this feels empty to me. This is what I'm doing. I'm gonna go to college. I don't know much different than this, but what I'm doing feels empty to me. So if you're real, I don't even know if you're real, but if you are, you're gonna have to drag me out of this. And when I tell my story, oftentimes, it sounds like I took the first step because God met me literally within seven days of that prayer. Radically changed my life. You know what it turns out? It wasn't me who made that first move. It was the Lord who first empowered my heart to actually pray a prayer like that. Had he not loved me first, I would refuse him still. See, we make the mistake when we tell our own stories sometimes and we forget that it's Jesus who takes the first step. Remember John chapter six, verse 44. No one comes to, the, to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What ought this to do in us? Stone of remembrance, number two. It's the Lord who takes the first step, not us. What, what's getting formed in you as you think about this stone in your life? Let me, let me offer three suggestions. Number one, genuine humility. See, if you understand this doctrine, that it's the Lord who takes the first step in your salvation, not you who mustered the strength to find God because you were intellectual enough, because you prayed enough, because you were sorry enough, but actually as, as you were running your hell-bound race indifferent to the cost, it was Jesus who looked on you and had mercy and grace. That doctrine should form a humility in you that looks at this holy God and says, I, I don't deserve this, anything. There's nothing I deserve. What am I clinging on to? I don't... I have nothing to hold on to. Humility between us and God, but then humility between each other. Because if you get this doctrine, then you have no room to boast. None. You can never look down at someone else who's stuck in any pattern of sin and say, oh. Because look at this. It wasn't you. It wasn't you that overcame that sin they're dealing with. It wasn't you that made sure that you were the one who was going to get through whatever you were going through. It was the Lord who took the first step. Genuine humility. Number two, awestruck wonder. If, if, I, if this isn't getting a, a sense inside of you yet, you're not hearing it. Awestruck wonder. That you would leave here literally with your hands up like this and you would just say, why was I in that room today? I, why, why did you choose me? Why did you get me? This, that, that, this has nothing to do with me. This is all the Lord's providential hand over my life. Awestruck wonder at the God of the Bible and his love for you. Number three, steadfast peace. You know why? Because when you get this doctrine, you realize that it wasn't you that saved you in the first place, and it's not you that's going to sustain you in the long run. 
Why am I gonna put my head down on my pillow tonight and call myself a Christian and not walk away in rebellion to God? You know why? It's not because I got the strength. It's because Jesus is true to his word. That's why. And if Jesus was not true to his word, a rebel like me would run far away from the Lord. But Jesus has made a promise to me. He sealed it with the Holy Spirit, and I can rest with peace in that, knowing that whatever I'm going through, the God who rescued me will sustain me. I'll tell you, for a, a people who are going through a lot right now, and a people who have a lot of questions and a lot of heartache, and we're wrestling with a thousand questions of culture, we're trying to do this church thing in the midst of hostility, going through all sorts of pain, had an email this week from someone connected with our church who lost their husband to COVID this week. Going through all sorts of pain. I know you're watching me. I'm praying for you this week. Steadfast peace that the Lord who saved me out of my hell-bound race will sustain me until I cross that finish line. That's our confidence, Christian. Humility, wonder, peace. Stone number three, God often uses other Christians in our conversion. Very important. Let's pick up verses 10 to 19. Remember where we left Saul. Saul is now fasting three days without food. He's blinded by this light he saw on the road. But he doesn't yet know fully the gospel. As far as we know, he hasn't been explained the gospel yet. He met Jesus. Maybe that was enough for him. But right now he's left fasting. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Ananias said, here I am, Lord. Pause. To faithful Christians... Be ready to say, here I am, Lord. The only way to be prepared to say, here I am, Lord, for those moments when the Lord calls you specifically by name with a task he needs you to do is you are faithful in prayer in the long haul in the day in, day out of life. Here I am, Lord, says Ananias. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look, at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I'll let that verse just sink in for a moment. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered his house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Stone number three, God often uses other Christians in our conversion story. Think about Ananias for a second. Here's this man living a faithful life. He's a disciple. He knows that men like him are being persecuted. He's very well aware of the situation. And when God calls on him, when he's in prayer one day, he goes before God authentically and says, Lord, the mission and task you're assigning me is dangerous. 
I, I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't, I don't understand why you would call me. I'm fairly safe. I'm being faithful, aren't I? But what do you say, Lord, Lord, if this is what you're calling me to do, I'll go. See, that's faithful following of Jesus, isn't it? That's what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ. We live this day in, day out faith in Christ where we say every day, Lord, this is your day. Where are you calling me? I'm in, I'm in, I'm going. What do you want me to do? That's pretty scary. But if you got my name on that mission, I'm, I'm in. And then Ananias goes. So Ananias finds Paul. And we don't know exactly what he said to him, but by the end of this conversation, Saul is a follower of Christ who's getting baptized. What was the message that Ananias brought to him? It was the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for sinners like us, that while we were still sinful, while we were destined for hell, separated from God, stuck in our death, Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood that we could have our sin forgiven. Can you imagine Ananias describing that to Saul? What would Saul be saying? Yeah, I know my sin. I'm very well aware of that. Jesus had made that unbelievably clear to me. I imagine Saul on his knees fasting those three days. You know why? He was broken over the reality of his sin, realizing that he had made himself an enemy of God. And then a man comes along and says, look, for men like you and men like me, there's this thing called grace upon grace. That no matter what you've done, no matter what mistake you've made in the past, no matter how vile your sin was, Jesus paid it all on the cross. And if you will believe in Jesus Christ, if you will trust him and make him Lord of your life and be baptized as an expression of that faith, you will be forgiven of all of your sin. Just trust in the name of Jesus. I, I, just, I, I have to imagine Saul broken over the reality of grace. A man who had followed the law to such perfection, realizing there was nothing he could do to earn it. There was no more to do. There's nothing he could do. Jesus did it all for him on the cross, and he gets baptized immediately. God uses Ananias in Saul's life. I want to ask you for this stone of remembrance. Who did God use in your life? This is important for Christians to reflect on. Here we are. We've crossed the Jordan River. We're looking at these stones of remembrance. Who are those people that God directed you in your path? Maybe it was parents. Maybe it was siblings, friends. Maybe it was an evangelist you saw on TV. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard. It was Billy Graham and his crusades, watching on TV, getting saved in the living room. For me, it was two men, particularly, a man named Alex Costa and a man named Brandon York. They were after I made my, my decision to trust in Jesus Christ. But these two men, Alex Costa and Brandon York in my college years, just invested in me. They just poured their heart into me, week in, week out, walking through all my mistakes with me, teaching me the Bible. I didn't know anything about this book. Just walking with me. Who did God use in your life? Here's what I want you to do today. I want you to just take some time. And if you can, I want you to call them on the phone. And I want you to say, the Lord used you in ways that you will never fully understand to bring me to salvation. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. That's what it means to have a stone of remembrance. You look backwards and you say, this is what God's done and how he did it. And then I want you to think about this. The Lord will use you to be that stone of remembrance in other people's lives. And I want to ask you, who's in your life that you're investing in right now? 
Because oftentimes you don't see the, the impact you're having and the significance of the work you're doing until many years later. But it's faithfulness in the day in, day out, saying yes to what Jesus is calling you to. That many years later you look back and you get a phone call from someone saying, you'll never understand fully what it meant for me when you showed up and you helped me in that season. Stone number four, the gospel changes us radically from the inside out. The gospel changes us radically from the inside out. This change has historically been called conversion, okay? So when we use that word, we're talking about conversion, and it's a change from the inside out. It's not outward in. It's not that our actions change, and we just start doing the actions long enough, and we fake it till we make it. Conversion is your heart literally changes from a dead heart, a heart of stone, to a heart of flesh. And for the very first time, you're actually changed. Listen to what happened to Paul or Saul. Acts chapter 9, verse 19 through 25. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. Huh. Can you imagine that? Imagine being there and knowing exactly who Saul was, knowing who he was. And then all of a sudden, he walks in. I, I don't know how to explain this. Think of this. This is, this is a close comparison. If someone like Osama bin Laden walked in this door, and he came up and said, can I preach about Jesus Christ from this, from this pulpit? You, you, we would all look and say, uh, <laughs> uh, isn't this the guy who killed guys like us? That's what happened. All of a sudden, Saul walks in the door. He's going to the synagogues preaching about Jesus Christ. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Listen to what happens. The old, the old people that he was friends with, they now turn on him. They tried to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. <laughs> Talk about an amazing story. Imagine getting lowered in a basket out of a wall of a city to make sure you don't get killed. That's pretty incredible. That happens to some Christians around the globe today. Thinking of my brothers and sisters who are faithful pastors serving in China right now who are being persecuted for their faith. Pastors thrown in prison, escaping by story of night. If you don't know about those stories, make sure you're reading them. Consider the change in Paul. Paul went from persecuting Christians to preaching the gospel of Christ. He went from serving alongside the Jews and crushing Christianity to being crushed himself. He went from, being, from persecuting to being persecuted. Outwardly, Paul was an entirely new person. Why? Because his heart was changed from the inside out. There was an actual change that took place. It's not just that he added church into his life. See, us Western Christians, we get this wrong. We think what church is, what Christianity means, that we come to church on a Sunday, hear a sermon, and go back to our life Monday through Saturday, and by and large, we're the same person we were before we knew Christ. By and large, nothing much changes about us. Christianity really is just add a little sprinkle of Jesus on the weekends, if you have the time for it. If the weather's not good enough to be at the beach instead. That's Christianity. Not in this church. That is not what a Christian is. A Christianity is a heart change. A Christianity is you've been changed from the inside out. It's not regular life plus a sprinkle of Jesus. It's I was dead and I've been given life. 
Some of us are actually stuck in the sprinkle of Jesus Christianity, and I'm telling you, if you're not seeing any fruit in your life, that's why. And I'm inviting you to actually trust in Jesus for the first time and allow him to truly change your heart from the inside out. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote. He says this, another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. If the man does not live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs to be repented of and his conversion is a fiction. Let me say two caveats to this. Number one, sometimes I, I know that I preach hard on you guys. <laughs> I, think, I think we need this. I think we need to be reminded of these truths. And sometimes I feel like I leave and I leave some of you questioning your own salvation. That is not what I want to do by any means. Listen to me. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have genuinely repented of your sin and made him Lord of your life, you are saved. Your salvation is secure. There is nothing you can ever do to change that. With that said, I want to call you up to something more than, than, than powerless Christianity. I want to call you with the salvation that has been granted you by Jesus to step into it and live as if it were true throughout your entire life, every moment, every day, because it's the most glorious thing that's ever happened in your life. And it's the life that is truly life. I'm inviting you up into something more. A life that's totally changed. Everything about you changes. You come to church on Sunday not because it's what you have to do, because your heart's been changed. Where else would you be than with your community? Number two, some of you have a story which is like my precious wife's. And sometimes what we do is we highlight the stories of the Sauls who were going a thousand miles an hour away from the Lord on a Harley Davidson on drugs down a hill and they were about to die and then the Lord met them. And those are the stories we tell on the front of the stage. But sometimes you got a story like my wife's, which is what I hope all three of my daughter's story is, that her earliest memory is trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And here's what I want to tell you. That is no less a miraculous story than the guy on the Harley going down a mountain a thousand miles an hour. No less. And every stone of remembrance that I'm setting up today was true of her story and every one of your story where you made a profession of faith as early as you remember. Before you made that profession of faith, you were also an enemy of the Lord who needed a regenerate heart. But the Lord had mercy on you and grafted you into his family because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And it is a miracle that he got you before you had scar upon scar in your life because of the mistakes you made with sin in your life. The story I pray would, I just prayed for all these children up here. There ought to be change in your life from the inside out. Let me finish this last one quickly before I run too long. Stone number five. Jesus encourages us and equips us through biblical community. This is your story. I'm telling your Christian story. I'm helping you write your own testimony here. All of these should be in your story when you tell it. Jesus uses encourages and equips us through community. Acts chapter nine, verse 26 to 31. But Peter, the, but Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. I'm sorry, where am I? I'm in chapter 10. Chapter nine, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, remember Barnabas, son of encouragement? We learned about this guy a few weeks ago. His name means son of encouragement. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And Saul spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him too. 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now we met Barnabas before. What's the situation that just happened? Saul gets down to the apostles. The apostles recognize that it's Saul and they too are afraid of him. And what happens? Barnabas comes along, puts his arm around Saul and says, look apostles, I've seen what God's done in his life and I vouch for him. Park, this is your church family. And just like Saul, if any of us try to do this Lone Ranger Christian thing, or any of us see people in our parameter who are trying to do a Lone Ranger Christian thing, and we don't put our arm around them, and we don't say, look, you're not falling through the cracks while I'm here. I see you. I know what you're going through. I know what that must feel like to have other Christians looking at you and judging you because of what you used to do. And we don't come alongside them and like a barnist, put our arm around them and say, guess who's vouching for you? I am. I am. You're with me. We go together. Where are you going? I'm going with you. See what Barnabas did? Can you imagine the life that fed into that man? Can you imagine him when he walked to the apostles at first and the apostles were like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. And Saul being like, oh, you don't know. I wish you knew. I wish I could explain it. And then Barnabas comes up. He's like, this guy, he's with me, and I can vouch for him. Imagine the fuel that put in his chest. Imagine what that did to that man. Can I just encourage you? I want, I want, to, I want you to be a church. I want us to be a church that are sons and daughters of encouragement, that are on the hunt for people who need an arm around them to say, come here. Look, look at this. You and me, we do this together. I see what you're going through, and you are not going anywhere. I'm with you. I'm with you. you that fuels people for what the work that God's called them to. And some of you in this room, you need that arm around you as well. Park, Paul's story is an incredible one. Five stones of remembrance. Paul, Saul, who turns into Paul, the Apostle Paul, his story is remarkable. It, in some ways, it's unlike any of ours, but in other ways, it's just like all of ours. What's God done in your life? As you go home today, I want you to reflect on those stones of remembrance in your own life. I want you to reflect on your own testimony. I want you to take a moment in celebration and going before your Lord and saying, God, thank you for taking a sinner like me. Thank you for the people you used. Thank you that when I was blind, you gave me eyes to see. Thank you for surrounding me with a community. That's what ought to happen when you read Saul's story is you reflect on your own. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We love you. We thank you for our story that you grafted us into the family of God when we were sinners without hope in this world. God, I pray for those in this room that are realizing the spiritual work that happened in their life for the very first time. Some of this is hard to wrestle through. Some of this we've never heard before. And God, I pray for those in this room that are wrestling through this, realizing the reality of what Jesus has done in their life, perhaps for the very first time. God, I pray for them that you would seal these truths into their heart in a way that is powerful, a reminder of grace in their life. God, be with them right now, I pray. Powerfully move among them. Move among this church. We ask for strength in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen.